To today's episode of the Survival Podcast, episode 3,228. 3,228 times we've gotten together at the Survival Podcast, and that's not even counting all the rewinds we've done over the years. It's a couple hundred of those. Uh, never included them in the show numeric sequence, made them their own thing. So, what's up today? Just me, guys. Just Jack. Um, as promised, this will be one of my kind of off-the-top-rope shows where I'm going to be kind of harsh in some ways, I think. And I, I actually don't think I am. I, I just think it can be perceived that way. I think that today's show might be what you could call one of the most compassionate types of shows that I do, where I discuss the reality of what success is and what success isn't, where it comes from, where it doesn't. Uh, the problem ends up being that when you talk about the types of things that I am going to discuss today, it causes people to have to look within and then accept certain things that are very difficult to accept. Like, gee, I'm the primary reason I am where I am today. I am the primary reason that my life is the way that it is today. And uh, I, I, I know when I do that, I usually get some hate mail. And skin is very thick, folks. Uh, it, it's probably my skin probably goes down to about that far on my arm for those on the video. It, it doesn't hurt me. What I actually hope is the people that feel that way when they listen to a show like this or they watch a video of a show like this, when it's all over, no matter how mad they are, the inside them is a seed and it won't let them go. And it becomes, you know, the Jack, you're a jerk story. That, that's what I live for is the Jack, you're, you're a jerk because of you. I did these things starting two years ago, and now this is where I am. This is a show that is all about success for you. I'm going to tell you a story of one individual in particular today. I'm not going to pick on the guy. I'm not going to give his name. I'm not going to go line by line through his responses to me. But my very first response to him was, so your actual problem is really that I care more about you and your success than you do. And, and that's a difficult position to be in, to be in a position where you care about people more than they do. In my past, when I was in the regular business world, um, I did a lot of consulting. And I've been asked to consult many times since I started the podcast. And my general response is no. No, consulting makes me miserable. And there's people that are good consultants. There's people that are great consultants, but there's also people that are bad consultants, right? There's all three of them. And then there's people that are good or great, but miserable when they're consulting. And there's people that are happy when they're consulting. The happy consultant who's good or great can go in, analyze a situation, lay out a path, and then be completely at peace with what you do with what they give you. If they <clears throat> care about what they do, they see what they do as their job, and they divorce themselves from the results as long as those results either were obtained because the person followed the advice or failed because the person didn't follow it. I don't think you can be a good or great consultant. Lay out the plan, have the, 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 the party that you consulted for, use it and not work and be disconnected and divorced from it. But I think you can be divorced from, it's not my responsibility as a consultant to make you do it, just to tell you what to do. Then there's people like me. When I get inside a business, when I get inside a person's head, when I spend, and I spent, spent a lot of time with clients when I did this, I would go into a business and I would 
say, I don't want you to even talk to me. I don't want you to ask me any questions. I don't want to ask you any questions. I want to be able to walk freely through your business and I want to observe what you say to each other when other ones of you are not listening. Uh, I've even, I even did that in a couple of situations where I was there in a way that made the employees like not give a shit that I was standing there when they were having direct conversations with each other that might have been negative for the company or a boss or something like that. Right. And, and so I, I become completely immersed in that company, fully understanding the challenges that the company has, the problems and the advantages and the assets that company has. And then I would put together this plan. And by the time I was done that, I felt like it was actually part of it. That's what made me very good at it. And it made me very miserable to get a great big check and go, yeah, I did a great job. And then watch the company fail to execute on the plan that they were given. And so I'm coming to you today like that without knowing you, but knowing the basics of how people think, uh, the way that they behave and the excuses that they make. And, and what that means is, if it triggers you, it probably is, because even if I don't know you by name or face, I do care about your success. And in some instances, I think I care more than you might for yourself. And I know that's really hard to understand. But what I mean is I care enough to look at the negative. I care enough to look at the risk. I care enough to look at the consequences and say, do it anyway. I care enough to assign the blame not to some third party, but to you. And if you think about it, if you had a good dad or a good grandfather, a good mom, a good grandmother, that's how much they cared. They were not afraid to say, Johnny, Susie, Mary, Billy, whatever. You're wrong here. I love you. I'll always stand by you, but you're wrong here. And so today's show is actually called Why They Always Win and You Always Lose. And I'll, you know, I know many of you are winning. And you're not the you. The you is in quotes and the they is in quotes because it means different things to different people when they say it. And my hope today is that those of you who need to hear this benefit immensely from it. And those of you that don't really need it but could use it benefit. So no matter where you are in your walk of success, and in getting things done, I hope this is incredibly good for you. And we'll get to that in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsor of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is the Greater Reset 4, also called Co-Creation. And this is John's fourth shot at doing the Greater Reset since the Great Reset was officially announced. John put together this initiative called the Greater Reset. He's built uh, a Telegram community of tens of thousands uh, of members. He's now done uh, four of the, well, this will be the fourth event. This is going to be the biggest and best one ever starting on the 18th next week, which is a Wednesday. Liberate your mind, body, and soul. 19th, permaculture and food independence. That's the day I'm speaking. Agorism and parallel networks on the 20th. 21st, take back our tech. That's Saturday and Saturday evening. Uh, J.P. Sears and Zuby will be performing and speaking. It'll be awesome. And then the 22nd, which is a Sunday, not everybody stays through that, but it'll be on building free uh, and conscious communities. So actually rebuilding and building new communities. And if it, John, let me just say something about John's events. Here's a picture of a, a past one at the same venue. The Bastrop um, Center is a, is a great venue for events of this size, which are in the five, 600 headcount events. 
They're amazing. The food is great. The facilities are great. You don't get double dinged for parking. It's a it's a it's an easy place to get to if you have to fly in uh, kind of last minute for airfare, but it's not that far from Austin. So you can fly into Austin. I'll be driving down from the Fort Worth area. It'll take me about three and a half hours. I would advise you if you're going to be one of these people getting kind of last minute tickets and you're not local and you're looking for lodging, I would go and look on Airbnb or that other one that's like for vacations and stuff like that uh, than hotels because there's enough people coming in for this. Hotels are somewhat limited and prices seem a bit elevated at this point. I myself uh, set up an Airbnb for myself. Anyway, um, I wanted to see because I've had some people when I say Zuby, they're like, who is this Zuby dude that's right here on the screen? Zuby's a pretty amazing guy, folks. I'm really looking forward to meeting him. I'm hoping that I come away from this uh, with an interview with him. And so Zuby is kind of an independent rap artist, which in of itself is not huge for me. I, I'm more of a, I, I tend to like Van Morrison, right? So I'm not, and, and like 90s rock and, and, and 90s country. So I'm not exactly your primary target for rap, but I love Zuby as a man and what he's doing. And this dude's intelligent. He has a degree in computer science from Oxford. And he's a black dude, and he speaks out against wokeism, so he's been totally attacked for that. So that's, you know, that alone is worth listening to someone talk when they're willing to stand up like that. He's also become a huge influence for many young men in America. I, I hope that I have as well, and that's what today's episode is about, and I thought that made it uh, a good sponsor today. Also, one more thing before we uh, we move on to today's subject I want to remind you guys, we do have a pol the Political Game t-shirts now in the TSP Swag Shop. You can find that at tspswag.com. Politics, a game invented by psychopaths, run by sociopaths, played by idiots. I, I put that at the beginning of the show today instead of the end because it fits perfectly with what we're going to talk about. Just a little side note, you said I've got the Dark Heather versus the Black up there. I love black t-shirts. I think that shirt looks really good in the Dark Heather. We also have it in the Dark Navy. Um, but it fits today a great deal because so many people are waiting for some sort of political solution to the problems that we have. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's it's not coming. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you can accept some of the things that I'm going to tell you today that are going to be things that you may not exactly be in love with the idea of accepting. I want to start out with something, though. Whenever a person who is seen as successful and I hope that I'm seen as successful. But whenever a person is somewhat successful and fairly economically comfortable talks like I'm going to talk today, there's an underlying tone, even if you don't hear your audience say it, where the audience has a thought in their head. Well, that's freaking easy for him to say, right? And the reason I know that is no, is in spite of what I'm going to about to tell you about myself as a young man, and when I was broke but not poor, and what I mean by that, and having tremendous optimism about my future, I even though I was in a good place mentally, I still would get that action, that 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 internal dialogue. And I would always try to catch it, but I didn't always catch it. So I know that that's how people feel. But I think it helps to understand that when you're listening to a person talk about success that has a track record of success to stand on, that means, first of all, you can take their advice. If you, the last thing you want to do is listen to someone talk to you about becoming successful mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, who's out of shape, not in a good place mentally and spiritually, and dead-ass broke. You don't get your advice from people that are worse at the thing they're giving advice to you on than you are. 
or even just a little tiny bit better. You want somebody that's gone, gone to a level that you aspire to. And, but it does help to know that maybe this person wasn't always successful, wasn't born into money. So there might be some redundancy here for people that have listened to me a long time, but I'm going to go short with the backstory. I was born the son of a bootleg coal miner in central Pennsylvania. For a number of years, we left that area because my dad was afraid that my mom's drug activity was going to catch up with him and get him killed because a person was killed and ended up in a morgue. And he received a phone call asking if he knew who Jack Spierko was, Jack Sr. And he told the person on the other the phone, yes. And when they, they, they said, well, who is this? He, he told them, and they said, no, we have Jack's body here at the hospital in the morgue. If you're his brother, we need you to come over and identify him. He said, well, wait a minute. No, I'm Jack. Do you have Mark or Mike? Because he had two brothers. And they said, no, it's Jack. He said, I'm Jack Spierko. And, and they hung the phone up on him, and no one would take his call. He went over there. They wouldn't let him in. A day later, uh, an article came out in the newspaper that this individual, whoever he was, was found tied to a tree with wire, shot and stabbed multiple times, and yet froze to death in the woods not far behind the house we were renting. So that's why we left, and he set up a tire business. So he had a used tire business for a number of years, and then later on we moved back to Pennsylvania. I didn't find out about any of this. We never had a lot of money. When we moved back to Pennsylvania, he went back to being a bootleg coal miner. Um, that's about as broke as it gets. I got out of there when I was 17 years old. I joined the Army. Not because I was a big America patriot, though I was somewhat in my heart and soul. You have to be, I think, to join the military at that age. But because I needed to get the hell out of there. And I saw no opportunity for myself. I spent three years in the Army. I came back. I took a walk on the Appalachian Trail from central Pennsylvania uh, to northern New Hampshire to kind of get my head right. Came here to Texas and then became a success overnight. No, it's not what happened. I was dead broke. Um, I would stretch 10 bucks a week into my grocery bills. I was on a first-name basis with, with the people at Taco Bell and Jack in the Box from ordering value menu bills, uh, meals. Uh, the first job I got when I came here, other than, like, I did side work. Like, I worked actually as security at a nightclub and stuff like that under the table, cash money. But my first job, J-O-B job, I worked in a warehouse packing boxes for $5.90 an hour. I eventually worked myself in the field of telecommunications and then began a career progression upward. But it took it took several years of absolute shit living. I drove a $400 car. It was a Mustang II, for God's sakes. I had something go wrong with the ignition lock. I couldn't afford new parts, and you literally started it. It was basically a hot wire job. I pulled the steering wheel off, broke the locks out, and you and I hit it so you didn't know that that's how it works, so nobody would steal it. But basically, you slid the column down and pushed the ignition down to start the car. I drove it that way for a year. Right? I was broke. So when you hear me today telling you that, like, you can do this, this is how to think, this is what to do, you have to think this way before you have the success that you're seeking in your life, then just know it's not because I grew up being taught this stuff. I had to, to work and learn and learn from mentors. And I, I, I remember being very frustrated with people in my life that I will call mentors now because I felt like they oversimplified things. and I felt like I was a good student. Tell me what to do and I'll fucking do it. That's how I felt. And they would say, no, you have to discover it for yourself. And they would teach principles instead of specific actions. You know, they might take us teach a specific action like journaling and holding yourself accountable and setting goals. But they wouldn't tell me what goal to set, what where to pursue. And I, I realize now that if they had, they would have ruined everything for me. 
And, and so I hope that you understand what I'm saying today from that perspective, because we're going to start out with something that many of you immediately are going to say, well, oh, that can't be right. That's not true. Jack's gone over to the dark side or whatever. I did a thread. It's still um, pinned to the top of my Twitter profile. And it was about all this shit. It, what, came, what it came from initially was all this shit about they hired 87,000 new IRS agents to make billionaires pay their taxes. Well, I did the math, and you would have 146 agents assigned every billionaire in America by the numbers. And so that doesn't uh, track. But the idea that billionaires cheat on their taxes in the first place is a stupid idea. I'm going to tell you something right now. Billionaires do not cheat on their taxes. And if the hackles on your neck just went up or you got a little bit angry or visceral, like I got to disagree on this one. The problem is you don't understand what I mean when I say that. What I mean is. They don't break the law or the IRS code in general. They play the game as it was designed. And this thread lays out how it is the billionaire class. That's not every billionaire. It's the billionaire class that employs the lobbyists that write the laws and influence the code and use things like regulatory capture to set the stage for how the game gets played. And so I, I, I would just put it a, a little bit of a different way for you to, to kind of help you maybe grasp it a little bit more directly. If you could pay almost no taxes without cheating on your taxes, but you assumed a risk if you did cheat on your taxes, would you cheat on your taxes? Yes or no? For those in the live stream, I'd like to see you answer that question for me. Let me state it again so you understand how I'm saying it. If you could pay little to almost no taxes, Without treat cheating on your taxes, would you cheat on your taxes? So if you would still cheat on your taxes, even though not cheating would mean you'd pay almost nothing, but you would assume a risk, would you cheat on your taxes? And I'm waiting for the lag to catch up, but I'm going to bet that most people would say no. Why would, I, why would I cheat on my taxes and assume the risk of cheating on my taxes if I wasn't going to pay any taxes in the first place? And let's not let's not go with it's not cheating because it's theft. I, no, no, no. I understand that. I mean, in the context of when people say that the billionaires cheat on their taxes and here come the answers now. No, 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 because it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't logically track that. Let's say you made two hundred thousand dollars this year. And in the end, you're going to pay like five grand in taxes. But if you cheat and you get caught, you risk everything that you have. And if you don't even risk everything you have, you risk a huge amount of that $200,000. Of course not. It's stupid. The tax would be so low, you would see it as like, that's just, that's part of the expense of the business. And you're not a billionaire. Well, let me tell you, billionaires see it exactly that way. And my thesis in this thread is, you can, in, you can up enforcement all you want. And you're never going to get more money from the billionaire or even the high net worth millionaire, 100 million and up class, because they don't cheat. Occasionally, you might find in an audit an accounting error or something and get some money out of them, but it's so prohibitively expensive to audit them. Even the IRS says this. You see this nonsense going around. The IRS primarily audits poor people. The IRS does not audit poor people. There's no money in auditing poor people either. What they do is they send poor people letters of demand. That is not an audit. Having been through a freaking audit, that is not an audit. That's like saying, well, I went to the doctor and he looked at my butt through my pants 
and equating it to having him do a, you know, a beyond prostate exam up to the elbow with no loop. Okay. An audit is a very invasive procedure. It's not somebody glancing at your ass and going, Hey, you look like you're in good shape. That's kind of what the letter of demand is. And if they do this because the poor don't know how to write a well-constructed letter back that says, F you, I don't owe you any money. I've gotten many of those letters. They were right one time out of all of them. And I paid them when they were right because I knew I would lose. But they were also overestimating what I owed them. And I corrected it in the letter and made them a remittance. I actually have, I should frame it. I have an apology letter from the IRS for one of their letters of demand. They actually used the word, we apologize for your inconvenience. That was, I don't know, somebody had a great day that day and thought he would be nice or threw me a bone, right? So that's not an audit. They audit mostly people that are small business people that have $1 million to $6 million in annual revenue. And I know this because I've talked to actual former IRS agents that say, when you are an experienced auditor, that is your sweet spot. These people are so busy, they can't defend themselves. They don't have the resources to defend themselves. One to six million sounds like a big business. It's not. That person's going to have 20, 30 employees. The owner of that business might pay themselves $150,000 a year if they're lucky, right? There's the small business like I am, and then there's that business that has way more overhead than I do. And that person in that one to six million dollar range is trying to get into that $25 million range. That's where they really have a going concern where they can live a really great life and still leverage employees and things like that. You kind of stay on one side or the other of that number. If you want personal wealth, I know it sounds nuts, but if you want to have way bigger, then you got to power through that. That's when they hit you. That person's killing it. So they can't defend themselves. That person doesn't cheat either, but they have a high propensity for errors. Because, again, it's a person killing themselves, doing a lot of things for themselves. They should hire somebody else, too. But it's more important if I'm running a painting business that I hire another painting crew than the best accountant that I can. You see how that works. So the billionaires don't cheat because they don't have to because everything was already set up for them so that they didn't have to. Now, at the end of this thread, this is what made today's episode happen. A guy said, that's why I don't do it. Who has time to go through? Because I said there's 77,000 pages or 70,000 pages in the tax code, and there are. And about 67,000 of those 70,000 pages tell you how to get out of doing what the other 4,000 pages say you have to do. And this person said, who has time to go through all those pages and all that legalese? And that's why I don't do it. Who the hell does that? And he got very upset and went into a long thread. You can read it if you want to. When I said people that are more successful in life than you. And you don't go through all of them. You you, you figure out everything that you're spending money on. You carefully track it. And you take it to a good CPA and say, can this be an expense in my business? And if it can't be this year, could I have done something different that I can change to next year? And then I'll do it then. Then he came back. Well, first, it wasn't enough time to go through it. Then I don't have enough money for a CPA. Not everybody can afford a CPA. I'm like, CPAs pay for themselves. They don't cost you any money if they're good. Either that or you have no income. By the way, this guy's trying to build a business. And there's you can read the whole thing. Again, I don't want to really beat up on the guy. He went through a massive amount of mental gymnastics. And in every response, he also told me, I'm just someone that's been sharing your stuff and trying to help you. And this is how you pay me back. Okay, this guy has like, 500 Twitter followers, if he's lucky. He probably has never listened to this show. He doesn't know who I am. And until he made that comment, I actually had him not blocked but muted 
And I saw there was a comment from somebody you mute. I turned on. He's been trying to sell me his bullshit to make my podcast successful for six months. Right. So he's been trying to sell me, but he's doing me a favor. I don't bring that up to pick on the guy. I'm saying this is the mindset. Overvaluing an action that has low value. That's a hallmark of a poverty conscious person. A, a wealth minded person is, is most critical first of their own actions. Right. They're first critical of themselves. Every action they take, they look at that action and they say, should I have spent the time, the money and the energy to do that? Yes or no. And they're their own worst critics. And until you get to that point, you will always waste time and energy in ways that you shouldn't. So when someone that's successful turns that eye on you, it can feel very harsh. But it's only because you're not doing it to yourself yet. Once you start doing it to yourself, you're like, damn, I didn't see that one. Thanks, dude. That hurts. But thank you. Thank you, sir. I have another. Right. Anyway, um, moving on from there. This is why everybody should consider owning a business. And I'll, when I explain some of the things that you can do within a business or as a pro, an investment property owner or both. You'll start to understand why billionaires don't cheat on their taxes and why you need to get into this 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 mental mindset. And I also want to understand I want you to understand something. It is poor people who don't own businesses, who have never run a business that think that rich people have businesses that lose money solely for the purpose of a tax deduction. That's also poor minded thinking. That's poverty consciousness thinking. It's they must be bad thinking. See, you've been programmed your whole life by the media and the school system to believe rich people are bad. And it's their fault that you don't have what you want. And they'll pay, pay you raw, raw service to, you know, work hard and you can achieve and you can do anything. But they really don't push you into that world, do they? They push you into the world of get a degree and get a job working for one of those evil rich people. Have you ever really thought about that? That's how the whole school system works. Right. It's a it's a socialist driven system. It's leftist as hell. Yeah. They teach you with an undertone and sometimes overtly at the same time that the rich people are the reason the poor people don't have anything. But what you should do is go into massive debt, get a degree and go get a job working for one of these evil people. And they, if they just paid more taxes, you'd be OK. No wonder we're screwed up. Again, it's called domestication. They're teaching you to become slaves to your masters. And it makes it very difficult for you to understand the concept of you never want to own a business that actually loses money. Now, if you can own a business that has a paper loss, a phantom loss, great. But even that, you have to report a profit every so many years or you end up having to report the revenue without the expenses. So when I say you need to start a business, I, need, I mean, you need to start a business with the intention of making money. But when it comes, and, and somebody used a word here, I started, and I'm, I'm not going to read the whole comment, but it says, if your primary goal is tax avoidance, that is never your goal. Tax avoidance is a crime. And language in this world, this is one of the things, rich people speak a different language than poor people, right? And it's not just about how much gray poupon they put on their freaking sandwich, they speak a different language. They know not to use certain words. 
You do not do tax avoidance. You do tax obligation reduction through proper structuring under tax code and U.S. law. Yeah, that's what you do. There's tax avoidance is a crime, right? No, no. See, he says tax avoidance is perfectly legal. Tax evasion is a crime. Tax avoidance is a crime, dude. Evasion and avoidance are both within the code terminology used to describe crimes. So you're avoiding taxes. You can avoid taxes. You put avoidance after tax. You go down that world. You do tax obligation reduction. Right. You will never see a CPA. An investment management firm, anything says we specialize in tax avoidance. You'll never see that strap line. Trust me. Anyway, it's nitpicking anyway. Moving on. Um, you need a profitable business. And you need a profitable business so you can start moving a huge amount of your expenses in your life that are earn, pay tax, spend, and you flip that to earn, spend, and pay tax on what's left. And you'll find if you if you go through the process of setting up a business and you operate it as a good fiduciary to your own business toward profit, even if you have more income you'll still pay less percentile taxes on your higher income level. Conversely, if you work for an employer, there's a certain sweet spot in a certain number of places where you change tax brackets, where you can get something like a $20,000 raise, but your net income gain will be somewhere in the neighborhood of $1,500 to $3,000. A $20,000 increase in wages but by the time, especially if you're single and no dependents, by the time you pay your additional tax obligations, you're paying a higher percentile in taxes and you actually have severely damaged that raise. You work your ass off for that raise and you get 15, 20 percent of it. If you do that with a business, what you'll find is that you'll keep most of that money and you may actually reduce the underlying expense on income if it's side hustle. If you do it right, if you structure it right, and if you have, and my God, my God, you need to make sure that what you're doing isn't because I said you could or some other person selling some bullshit says that you can. Right. That's that is not how you do things. You need a good CPA and you need to take everything that you want to do to them and say, what do we call this? We don't listen to somebody in a chat's comment telling you what you call it because they're wrong. Right. You do it with them. They're the one that's under a licensure. They're the one that are guaranteeing the advice. They're the one to give you a legal leg to stand on. If you have the right kind of CPA, they're the one that's next to you in an audit if you get the one, right? That's, that's what I'm saying when you do this. But you have to be able to start focusing on the income side of the equation. So one side of this is the reduction in tax burden, yeah? But the more important part of this the more important part of this is not the reduction in tax burden. It's the ability to accelerate income, to increase income, to work on the income side of the balance sheet. If you have, for instance, a job, the only thing you can do to increase your income outside of starting a side hustle, which is a business and puts you in the world I'm talking about, is go to your boss and go, please, sir, may I have a raise? Please, sir, may I, I give up more of my family time and work overtime? Please, sir, may I have a bonus structure? Please, sir, may I have a commission structure? Right? And, and then you're assuming risk without any of the benefits of, of being independent. Now, th- some of those are good step stones. 
in, in my career, I went from a straight wage slave to a wage plus commission. And I'll tell you what happens there if you're actually really good. Inevitably, you eventually start to make too much money and they restructure your payment program and change your incentive structure. And then you'll have to decide, do I go somewhere else, which is what I did initially. And then eventually when it happens once or twice, you go, you know what? I came in and took this job at this shit wage and this tiny commission, but there's big sales to be had. And all of a sudden, I'm knocking down more money than the the, the, the person that's running the, the division. And because of that, something must be done, even though I assumed all the risk of making shit and getting fired if I didn't make like it. So you get tired of it and you go out and you do it for yourself. Yeah. And that's the only way you have any control in a job is that throttled system that will always have a cap. Even when they say it's a limitless income. No, it's not. Only when you decide how you get paid, when you get paid, only when you decide that do you have complete control of the income side of the balance sheet. And most people, their first mindset, again, because you've been domesticated, controlled, and programmed by an education system in the media. I have too much debt, and I don't have enough income, and I can't pay my bills, or I'm living in a way that I'm uncomfortable, and I want to fix my life. What do they do? Cut expenses. They shop for a new cell phone plan. They go one package down with their uh, cable television. Uh, they reduce their, you know, if they take a 10-day uh, vacation every year, they do a five-day vacation. If they do a five-day vacation, they don't do a vacation. They do a staycation and stay at home, right? And they don't go out and enjoy themselves and travel or whatever. Uh, they, 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 if they live in a state like Texas, you look at your electric bill and see if there's a provider that charges you a penny less a kilowatt. They go and buy cheaper groceries. They buy a cheaper form of ground beef. Uh, they buy them. They do. Maybe none of these things are bad, right? Especially if you need to be doing them. None of these things are bad. Uh, Greg right here says tax preparation cost is a write-off. Yeah, here's the thing. Generally, your tax preparation cost comes the year after the tax year. Right. You prepare and, and finalize your taxes. Now, if you get billed during the year for cons consultations, that's different. But when you do your tax, your final taxes and your CPA says, here they are, sign off and you send them in. That expense accrues in that tax year, not the year that it was for. Just a little side note. But the, you, you again, you're back to where you, you, you want to work on the income side. And even business owners, they often fall into this trap. There's so many people who are small business owners and they got frustrated or they saw an opportunity and they left their job and then they went into something similar and they started a business. And they're one of the ones that truly got lucky in spite of doing a lot of things wrong. They got the business established. They powered through it. And they have a business, but they still don't think this way. So and this is a big part of the consulting I used to do. I'd go in and they would be like, we're, we're starting to go in the red. I'm worried I'm going to have to lay guys off in 60 days, et cetera. And. Everything at that point was about how do we cut outgoing cost so that we'll be able to make payroll a month from now or two months from now. And I generally look at it and go, OK, so we could do these things. You'll make payroll in March and then you'll be right back to where you are. And you won't be able to make payroll in April. Or we can take what you have now. We can go through your employees. We can find the deadwood. And I'm sure if you have more than a dozen employees, you have some. We can get rid of them. We can cut your employees' wages that you keep. Tell them that it's temporary. Make an agreement with them when it's coming back. Focus on your revenue. And as soon as we increase your revenue by this much, then your problem is solved. 
well, how are we going to do that? And sometimes there'd be a cost associated with it. They didn't want to spend the money. Well, okay. Then what you're doing is all you're doing by cutting your expenses at this point is delaying the inevitability of your business no longer being a business. Or you're going to end up laying off half your workforce instead of 20% of your workforce. Machiavellian, right? Those who are, those who are kind when they should be cruel will end up being cruel when they should be kind. And so even business owners do this. The number one thing you do, and there's, again, there's all about fine tuning expenses and not spending money that's worthless, you know, not really worth spending or what have you. But the number one thing that you do is you focus on getting more money. And once you move into the world of entrepreneurship, you can do that. And in any other position, you really can't. Take a second job. It's inherently limiting. You know, I'm going to drive for DoorDash or whatever, make some more money. You know what? You're a business owner now. Now, at least you're you should if you're going to do that shit, you should set up a business. If you're in California, you are because they came down on the gig economy and it was the best thing they ever did for people, whether they knew it or not, because it made them turn into business entities. Now, California, they tax and charge the shit out of you for being a business entity, but at least you get the mindset right. Maybe you'll leave California and take your business with you. Right. So always, always create a company. I don't care if it's a DBA doing business as what have you always create a company to operate under, not just for asset protection, because it makes it much cleaner. What is and what is not an expense who paid the bill and then talk to your account, because there's things like you could say, well, the company paid the bill, but it might become income to you, even though you're a sole proprietor. If you don't structure it right, and you don't call it the right words. Words are very important here. Um, now, the next thing I want to talk about is the power of positive thinking. I'm great. I'm wonderful and people like me, right? Like this. So when you start talking about positive affirmation and positive thinking and stuff, people generally say that's all hokum or they're like true believers in absurdity. There's usually not a whole lot of middle ground here and there should be because positive mindset is one of the most important components to being successful in life. And we can positively manifest opportunities for ourselves, but most people don't understand the dynamic of that. So a person will say, you know, I positively manifested an opportunity to get a bigger client. And a week later, I got a bigger client. And then the skeptic rightfully says, no, you didn't. Right. And and, and the, the true believer goes, that client literally appeared because you willed it. So, no. What happened was you tuned your mind to be in the right way. And something occurred. Somebody dropped a name. Somebody said something. You were at a bar and a guy across from you said something and he ended up being the person that became your client. You you picked up on something and more importantly than picking up on it, you acted on it because your mind was in the right place. So the big lesson there, and this is going to be a quotable moment from the show today. Positive thinking is incredibly powerful, but inherently limited. It will only do so much for you to think positively. And even when you act on it, there's still a cap. And that's okay. Because if you hit your cap, you're blowing and going and way ahead of where you could ever imagine yourself. If you ever wear out the limits of positive thinking, you're incredibly successful. And it's not a problem that you're at. You'll find a new positive thought to find more success in another angle. But there's, there's always a yin and a yang, right? There's, there's always a yin and a yang. There's always a negative and a positive. There's always a duality in everything. 
So if positive thinking has power, then so does negative thought. And here's your quote. While positive thinking is inherently limited, the power of negative thinking is limitless. There is no limit to how far down a person can be drugged by negative thought up to and including the point of of self-harm and suicide. Negative thinking can destroy an entire life. Positive thinking may only lift it so high. Negative thought is unlimited in power, and therefore it is inherently dangerous, and it must be controlled. You ever hear like the dark side and the light side of the force? Light magic and dark magic? That's the underlying ethos, because magic's not real and neither are the Jedi. I'm sorry, sci-fi fans. But the concept of the dark and the light, the reason the dark seems more powerful is because it's unlimited and the light is limited. But the darkness is dangerous to the person using it. Right. And we're not talking about spells and incantation, even though we're using a metaphor here. I'll never do it. I'll never succeed. It's their fault. This law prevents me from being being an Eeyore is an unlimited force for bad in your life. And so you're better off being positive about everything, as hard as it may be. Now, the other thing is, I want to just real quick before we go into the key differences in the mindset of the wealthy and the, and the impoverished mindset. I want to go back to the balance sheet again. Most people focus on cutting expense to improve their financial position in life. And they never focus on increasing income other than I'm going to get a job that pays a dollar an hour more, which is fundamentally limited because how many times can you do that? How many times can you do that? I can add another income stream to this business tomorrow and next week I can add another income stream to my business. And the next week I can add another. I'm not going to. There's a limit to how much I want to do. There's a certain amount of like, I'm really comfortable with the way things are. I'm serving my audience. I want to do a good job. And this is, I love where I am. And I, all I need to do is grow a little bit every month. I will never accept declining in success because then you're just heading for death. You're either growing or dying. It's another lesson in life. And I mean that when you're as a, as a human being, when you physically cease growing, your body be, you, you will hit a plateau. Then if you're not growing, You're plateauing. You'll only plateau so long and we'll begin a decline in old age to death. Businesses have the same cycle. Once they begin a continued decline, it is only a matter of time before they're gone. So I always want some growth, but I don't have to have unlimited growth. I don't want to build a team. I don't want to have people working for me again. I don't want to do that. I don't have to do that, but I could if I wanted to. So that's my mindset with income. Anything that goes wrong. I can change my mind because something happened in my life and I need more. I can work harder. I can do more. I can leverage more. I can make more money. Most people, they, they, they max that out very, very quickly and they focus only on reducing expense, which itself is inherently limited. But my bigger thing with this is if you think that way, or if you used to think that way, why who taught you to think that way? Almost everything we, we do, At some point in our life, we were taught by somebody else to do or think in that way. 
Who taught you that the best way to have more was to spend less, even while telling you to get a credit card and you needed to have debt or you were nobody in America? Who taught you that? The TV taught you that. The radio taught you that, i.e. the media. And your education, your schooling, your teachers taught you that. And your adults around you in your life by behaving that way taught you that. Now, who do all those people work for? The evil rich people that you're supposed to hate. See, you were taught that all the rich people are evil. Some are, some aren't. Some poor people are evil. Some poor people are good. You're not virtuous due to how much money you have or how much income you have. It doesn't work that way. In any segment of society, we have people that are good, okay, and bad. And we have a, you know, a segment that are really great, and we have a, a segment that are real scum. I mean, total, complete scumbag. And it goes across all income levels and all demographics. The concept that just by being wealthy and successful, that person was a cheater or bad or evil or part of them, you might have been taught it, but you chose to believe it. And until you choose to accept that those ratios are pretty similar across the income levels, you will not be able to do really much better for yourself. Because the power of negative thought is unlimited, and it will keep you from becoming that which you think is bad. You'll use it as an excuse. You will sit there, and you will use the fact that they must be bad. So if I play the game their way, then I'm joining their side, and I'm bad too. This is retarded. I'm sorry. Some people don't like that word. This is idiotic thinking. The person that did the mental gymnastics in that thread said, well, you just said that they're evil, and then he quoted me. Including the part where I said, you choose to believe it. I didn't say they were bad. I said, you choose to believe that they are bad. If you give me a game, I will play the freaking game based on the way the game works. There was a, back when I used to play video games, there was a role-playing game, and it was called Empire. And it was based in space. And you built all your ships, and you had, it was inherently limited in what you could do based on the wealth that you had. So you can't build a ship without materials and wealth. It was kind of like Sim City or something like that, but it was space. It was very early days of computers. This is like right after I got out of the army in the nineties, and like I built this whole fleet of ships. They were super cheap, but they were autopiloted and they would smash into other ships and destroy them. And I called them Dahmer class, like Jeffrey the Dahmer class ships, right? Because they ate away at other. And like all these people who were playing this game. They were all people who were like Star Trek fans and shit. They were trying to build the Federation, and but the game was called Empire. So I played the game as the game was designed, and other players in the game didn't like that. Well, tough shit. I didn't program the game. So if the game is designed, that one of the best things I can do to preserve and build my wealth outside of the taxation system is to own and leverage real property, then I'm going to do that. If the game was built so that one of the best things I can do to meet that goal is also to own a business so that I take things that you spend money on and move them inside the business as a deductible expense completely legally in their own rules, then I'm going to do that. That doesn't mean I join their side. It means I understand that whether I like it or not, I was inserted into this game. And that doesn't mean I have to give up my morals because my morals are they deserve none of my money. Yeah. They deserve none of my money. Who'd build the roads? I am happy to pay for the roads when I use them. Who'd build the schools? I am happy to fund 
the education of not just my children, but my grandchildren, which I'm doing right now. My wife funds the time and the effort. I fund the money. We pay for them. We put them through school. We would do that because we want to. There is a way to do all of this. So in my moral space, they don't deserve any of my money. So using their game to not give it to them. And what's really interesting to me is our friend that had these mental gymnastics said, you are on your knees before them, right? This was the last attempt where I gave, I'm like, I'm not talking anymore, dude. Hopefully the seed is planted because he said, I don't even pay taxes. So you can't afford a CPA. You're dead freaking broke. Your business is floundering. You're bothering some guy that doesn't want to talk to you about your BS to make his podcast successful when it already is. He has way, and I'm not bragging on myself. I'm just saying I have way more than this guy probably ever will. I hope not. I hope he becomes more successful than me. That would make me happy as shit. If this dude emails me in two years and says, dude, I'm worth two million bucks now and I'm growing and I'm going to be bigger than you ever thought about being because of what you said, I'm going to be payday. That's incredible for me, right? But he probably won't. He probably won't because he thinks that paying tax, not paying taxes is the way to go. That's not how the game works. The game works is you legally pay as little in taxes as possible. And the people that play the game that way, they always have more. They always have more. Even the drug kingpins end up with a problem. Too much cash. Don't know what to do with it. End up having to pay somebody to dispose of it and money launder it and having a 25 to 40% cost to launder their money so they can spend it. If you took the ingenuity behind those people and they worked in the very system that they think they're fighting, they would have more. And at the expense of no one, my playing the game better doesn't cost you anything. And I end up with more. And if you would play the game as designed, you wouldn't be costing anybody anything. You would be a member of the productive side of society. You would be benefiting others. If what I do did not benefit other people, I would have nothing. There is no guarantee of my income. Zero. I can do one show, piss everybody off, everybody cancels their thing and walks away, and I have nothing. The only way I can have income within the concern that is the survival podcast business It's to deliver value in the mind of the other side of the equation. That's it. So I can't be costing anything but to anybody else by playing the game right. As John said earlier here, where is it? You play to win. You play the game to win. That doesn't mean you have to be bad. That doesn't mean you have to be mean. You have to play to win within the rules of the game. So when somebody plays a game within its rules, they're not bad. They're not cheating. That's my point. So let's move in. Like, I'm going to go faster. I got 12 key differences in the way wealthy people think versus the way poor people think. And to make it go faster, I'm not going to tell you how poor people think. I'm going to tell you how rich people think or people that will eventually be wealthy think or people with the right wealth mindset. Even, you know, like started this out. I used to live on ramen noodles, stovetop stuffing and whole chickens. That was like 80% and fast food dollar menus. Back when a dollar menu bought you something, man. What you used to be able to get in a bag for four bucks from Taco Bueno or Taco Bell was crazy. It was crazy what you used to be able to get. And I lived on that shit for a while, but I always had the right. I didn't even have the, I didn't, I didn't have all the things I'm about to give you. I had the belief that I could find the way. When I was that broke, 
And people would talk about taxes and say the rich would, should pay more taxes. And I'm making $5.90 an hour, killing myself in a warehouse, sweating my brains out every day, working, go to work when it's dark, come home when it's dark. I still said no. And the reason is I could see myself becoming more successful. And you're going to get to where you understand the things I'm about to tell you if you're going to get there. Number one, people with a wealth mindset admire and respect success in others. Let me, John Bush is here. Let me uh, give him a little props. John and I have talked about this. John has a tremendous respect for Elon Musk. Now, and if you would, don't trust him. He's a plant. Look, no one said anything about trusting, right? He just rug pulled us with Twitter coin or whatever the hell it's going to be, right? That's in the, in the, in the Bitcoin community. It's not about trust. It's about, hey, look, this guy comes from a family, you know, they weren't poor, but they didn't have a ton of money and becomes the wealthiest man in the world inside 20 years. I respect that. I'm awed by it. The products like the Tesla makes, John owns a Tesla. It's an amazing product. It's not perfect. It has a lot of room for improvement, but it's the number one selling electric vehicle in the world. And the man has built rockets that put shit in space. I respect that. I admire that. Even if I don't like the guy and anybody who is successful, I admire the success as long as it's not like, well, tune in tomorrow and I'll talk about the most unholy alliance that I've ever seen in my life between the American Diabetes Association and a company called DaVita. But we won't go into that today. But I'm not going to say, and and John says, I, I ride off my Tesla in mad expense for Elon. Mad expense for Elon, and I ride off. Of course you ride it off. You're a business owner. Why wouldn't you ride it off? How, you know, if you, you could ride off the direct expense, or if you travel a lot, then you ride off mileage. Which one do you do? Which one puts more money back in your freaking pocket? Play to win. Get an, an account. They would tell you that. But you admire and respect success in others. They don't use words like must be nice. If I hear someone that sees somebody driving like a nice car or some shit or they have a nice house, must be nice. I'm like, poor person. And that person, this is a bonus. This is a bonus. It's not in the 12. That person does not get in my social sphere. That person is not someone that sits on my back porch and has a beer with me on a Saturday afternoon, just the two of us. That person's not something anybody that gets in a boat with me and I pick up the tab and we go out and fish with my fishing guide buddies. That person is not somebody I pick the phone up and talk to. They're not a person that I'm going to be a dick to. They're not a person that I'm going to avoid, but I am not going to bring them into my sphere of two true friends. My phone, this is an interesting thing. You either are in my phone as a contact and you're that person. So there's no picture with your contact record. You're not in my phone, so you're so far off my radar, I don't know you. If you're the person that will sit on my porch and have a drink with me, and I'll spend time with, and I want to become a little bit more like, your contact has a picture. Because when my phone rings and I hear it vibrate, I literally look over. Like in the middle of a live stream, nothing I can do. But like if I'm working and I can stop, when I see the contact come up, if there's a picture, even if I can't see who it is, I pick the phone up and I answer the phone. That's wealth mindset because I don't want to spend time with a person that says must be nice when they see success in other people. I don't want to spend time with a person who says, boy, that's risky when it's a hedged risk that either works or the loss is completely limited. I don't want, not because I don't like that person as an individual. I don't want to be more like them. 
Wealthy people spend their time around people that in some way they want to be more like. Not always, but there's something about that person you're like, I wish I could be a little bit more like John in this way. I wish I could be a little more like my friend David in this way. You know, John, John, I'm talking about this John right here is saying you can do it in the comments. I would totally sit on my back porch and have a drink with John. If he was closer, we'd probably do it more often because there's things about John I want to be more like. And hopefully there's things about me he wants to be more like. If you're not that person, you don't get I'll be nice to you. If I see you in a bar, I might even buy you a beer, but we're not hanging out. That's your bonus. Number two, buy rich people or wealth mindset people, even before they're rich. They buy things that hold value, produce value, and increase in value. That's where the majority of their spending goes. Things that appreciate in value across time, or they hold value across time, or they, they, they dispose of income at a, a higher than use case cost. So if I can buy something for $1,000, right, and I can get $2,000 worth of value out of it, and it can create a balance sheet expense over time of $2,000 or $1,000, then it's a net positive. But we spend money on things that benefit us in the long term. We don't spend money on things that go down in value. We damn sure when you start looking at, you know, I went out last night. I went to a Bitcoin meetup and I bought some chicken wings for the people that were there. Like I'll take three orders of chicken wings, just throw them on a plate, let everybody have them. There's no return on that. That's not an appreciating asset, but it's a it's a discretionary amount of spend. I didn't put it on a credit card. I put it on the fold card and got sats back on it, actually. I will write it off as an expense, but it doesn't fit that kind of expenditure. But it doesn't matter because it's not leveraged debt. One thing that wealthy-minded people do not do is buy depreciating assets with long-term debt. They just don't do it. Well, what if they buy a car and they lease it or they buy a car and they have payments on it? A wealthy person buys a car and says either this is a really great car that I'm going to own and give to my great grandchildren someday. And it's going to have long term value or they buy a car and say, how's this car going to make me money? Or I need to have a car anyway. How do I put this car into the control of my business so I can deduct everything on it? And so even that payment and even the portion of it that's debt, the value the car brings exceeds it. Even if it's just a personal vehicle and they can't do it, they still say, I'm buying a thing that I get more value from than I put into because they understand that vehicles in general go down in price across time. So wealthy people like to collect, you know, if you're super rich, you're Jay Leno, you like to collect cars, you have your own garage, but you're also buying these cars that there's like 10 of them left in the world. So it's still appreciating assets. But, you know, mid-level wealthy people, you know what they collect? They collect real estate. They collect an asset that you leverage debt to buy, but you can leverage debt against to have income that you pay no tax on ever. And you can keep rolling it into larger and larger properties. That's what rich people spend their money on. Rich people buy the most valuable thing. Poor people buy the cheapest thing. Moving on. Rich people have a, a they in, I'm sorry, rich people invest in their personal health heavily. You know, you see these TV shows and they have like the fat, rich dude that sits in his chair with his cigar, smoking all day and doing nothing but drinking brandy and stuff. You know, the, the, the wealthy people who live that way, that die, they're celebrities. They're people that were made. They're music artists, washed up music artists that still have a lot of money, washed up professional athletes that don't play anymore. They're people that have what you call found money. They're not people that are actively building wealth in their lives. 
when you see somebody actively building wealth in your life, you usually see a person who works out, trains in some way, watches what they eat. Even if they let it get away from them, they always come back to it. They're generally in good physical shape because they know that they can't do their best when they're physically at their worst. And they know that they get one ride through this world we call life, that the dash expense. So they take care of themselves. If you want to see people that look sick, go to Walmart. It's, it's honestly one of the most depressing moments of my life when for some reason or another, I actually need to go to a Walmart. It's just the place I need to go. Walking around in a Walmart, I just feel sad for America. You know who shops at Walmart consistently? Now, look, if you live in a rural community where the only place you can get shit in quantity is a Walmart, don't be offended by this. Uh, there's a lot of things I would tell you if you're offended by this tough today, this is not one of them. I understand. I've lived in places where, like, Walmart is where you got to go. I'm saying you're in a place, like, where I live. Like, if I'm in Walmart, there was something specific and some reason specifically that I went to Walmart. The person that buys everything that they use at either the convenience store, the Dollar General, or Walmart is poor. Go look at their health. Go look at their health. Well, they're poor. They can barely afford to eat. Well, this person's 380 pounds. They're eating something. They're not taking care of their health. And then you want to see this on steroids and really see how bad it is. Go to Walmart on or near, you know, right after, depending on when it hits, the first of the month, the 15th of the month, when the government checks go out. And you will see poor health in unbelievable numbers all throughout Walmart. And all the people look sad and desperate. And these are all the people that think the rich cheat on their taxes. And there might not be anything you can do for that person until they wake up for themselves and they're willing to, you know, take it on the chin the way that I'm trying to give it to you today. But wealthy people invest in their personal health. And that's something that if you want to be healthy, if you want to be successful, you need to do because you won't get your mindset right until your body's right. I, I have some good friends. I'm thinking of two people by name right now that I won't name who have said that are overweight and they need to do something about it. And both of them have sat with me and told me, when I get my mind right, I'll fix my body. And I, I as, as a good friend, I've had the willingness to look them both dead in the eye and say, you're full of shit. You'll never do it if you keep thinking that way. When you get your body right, your mind will start to get right. And they're not people that don't have at least some reason to have mental issues because of what they've been through in their lives. But it's still... You know what? No matter how you feel today, no matter how you think today, you choose what you put in your mouth. You choose whether you get up and take a walk or not. You choose whether or not you pick up a barbell. You choose all that shit. It's up to you. You choose what you eat and what you don't eat. And when you start finding comfort in food and booze, it's a one-way ticket to death. It's just how long is it going to take you to get there? And you're not going to become successful. So invest in your personal health. I'm not saying you have to become a health nut. You're running marathons or uh, triathlons or whatever. If that's what you're going to do, great. But what I'm saying is you got to focus on your health. And, again, someone always wants to find things. Some rich people drink excessively, in my honest opinion. Some of them do. But even those people tend to, if they're successful and actively building wealth, they still do things that mitigate the harmful activities that they make. And what is drink excessively? You know, there's people that think if you drink at all, it's excessive. If you have a couple of drinks a week, it's excessive. There's people that think you can drink a couple of drinks a day every day of your life and it's not excessive. So that's a 
That's a variable term. What I'm pointing out is that they invest in their personal and physical health, even if some of the things they do may not be optimal. So invest in your health instead of trying to find a way to wiggle around it, because that's your excuse for not effing doing it 90% of the time. Or, well, I take care of my body and I'm poor. What about these other freaking 11 things? One is only one. Next up is wealthy people have a plan for failure, not just success, right? Wealthy people have a plan for what if this doesn't work? What if the economy goes down? I told this story years ago, but in 2008, right as I started the Survival Podcast, my partner, Neil, had come to me about six months earlier and said, by the end of this year, so which is like January of 08, by the end of this year into early next year at the most, so like, you know, winter, late, early winter, late winter of 2009, this company is going to be in a deep recession. And I said, how do you know? Because I didn't believe it. And he explained to me how he knew. And he talked to me about what his advisors were telling him with managing his wealth and all. And Neil's a very, very wealthy man. Uh, at the time, I don't know he's worth today, but at the time, he was worth probably $50 million. And um, they qualify for a level of counseling that you don't and you're not going to get. And when he explained it, I completely agreed with him. He said, what do you think we should do? And I said, we need to overhaul the business now. He said, I agree. And we cut a bunch of people. Before, while the money was there, we cut them because they were not performing. And we took another group. This was a recruiting business in the technical field, and we knew it was going to hit that sector, and we needed top-performing recruiters. So we took the best performers, and we put them 100% on, 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 uh, on incentive compensation with no base, and they were happy because they immediately were making more, and they were unlimited, and we didn't screw them when they did really well. And we let them assume the risk of, of getting too comfortable. And we took the mid-tier people that still had a chance, and we put them through hell. We basically put them through a boot camp retraining of everything, tracking of everything. Two, there was four people in that middle group. Two made it. They became outstanding. The other two quit. And then we started hiring people one at a time and putting them through hell. And rebuild. And we went to a rebuilding mode before we had to. And when the recession hit, the company actually did better. It did more revenue in 2009 than it did in 2007 because we did it in advance. We had a plan for failure that even in failure looked like success. And so the company had less expense and more revenue when we got done with it. And the people that were there were happy. And the reason that they were happy is they didn't feel like there was a person next to them dragging everything down. Somebody being paid just to exist and hold down a desk and fill work orders. That actually it made sense to be an aggressive recruiter and do what we were teaching. Because what recruiters will tend to do if you don't stay on them is they will take orders and find candidates. And we always said, do that as quick. That's your gravy. What you really need to do is find candidates that there's not openings for and market the candidate to the employer. That was Neil's method. That's how he built the company in the first place. And that's what we ended up with because we had a plan for failure because we knew failure. Failure had nothing to do with us. No matter what that company did in 2008. By the end of 2008, the United States of America and globally, the market we served would be in a recession. There was nothing we could do to change that, but we could change how the company addressed it. That's a wealth mindset. That's what I learned from that. Like one of my greatest mentors of my time was working with Neil that way and seeing it actually done. They also seek out and obtain phantom losses. Like I talked about, you work on the income side of the balance sheet, but you also you should have somebody that is a financial professional at tax law in your life. 
if you know if you have a job and conventional investments and you don't itemize, okay, no, and you're not gonna. And then a lot of what I'm telling you today won't work for you, to be honest. But if you have a business of your own, you need a good accountant. And what you need to have that person do when you bring them something that's a little bit creative as a deduction, go, I, I don't know. If I don't ever get an I don't know from somebody advising me about tax law, I don't want that person. I love, yes, you can, here's how. I love, that absolutely won't work. But every once in a while, I want to, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Let me figure out, is there a way that we can turn this or part of this into an expense? That's what I'm paying you to do. Not be a yes man, no man, right? I want, I want someone to work for me. What can we do to it? And so I am constantly, whenever I'm going to spend money anyway, I have a pretty good handle on this stuff at my point right now. Like, let me think, can I do this? And then I would run it by my accountant. There's a lot of times I don't even, I don't even run it by my account. I just go, I know the best opportunity that I'm going to create for myself is to do things this way. And I'll do it that way. And I'll make notes of it and I'll record the expense. And then when I do meet with my accountant for tax purposes, I'll say, this is what I did. Is this expensable? And a lot of times they'll go, yeah, great. Let's do it. And they'll go, yeah, but don't call it that. Call it this. Okay, that's why I pay you. Or no, dummy, you should have called me. Do it this way next time. Okay. And over the years, you get better and better at that. You seek phantom losses. In other words, money you'd have spent anyway, or something like a depreciation expense on an appreciating asset. Right? You have to. You have to think that way, or you're always... You're, you're not playing the game to win, like John was saying earlier. Um, next, rich people are generous. Even asshole rich people are generous. You know, they think they're generous. Most people have a personal moral code that they don't violate. You just might find their moral code reprehensible. But in general, I have found that it's always the person that you would think of as wealthy that wants to pick up the check when you go to lunch. They're never here with T-Rex hands. You ever go to to lunch or dinner with somebody with T-Rex hands? They kind of insinuate that they'll pick up the check, but when the check comes, they're just kind of like, I can't really quite reach out and obtain the check and actually pay for it. Where, like, you know, I talked about, like, I have friends that I will hang out with. And... We've both, you know, both sides have been known to do things like if you get to the restaurant first, talk to the waiter and say, do not let them see the check. Right. It's always people that do well for themselves economically that behave that way. But what does the school teach you? What does the TV teach you? Ebenezer Scrooge. Right. Rich people are greedy. Right. You know, the Grinch's heart grew three sizes that day. Maybe their Grinch just thought everybody else was a bunch of dicks. It's kind of how they made the movie when they made the movie out of it, right? But, I mean, there is, like, a whole ethos, a whole lore. It's all The Disney formula. The rich guy is always the evil guy, the bad guy, right? Or the rich guy is a good guy is not seen in the Disney formula, right? The, the, rich, the rich person, right, they're not seen. There's a kid underneath it, and they live in a, a you know, richy rich lifestyle, or the rich guy that's a good guy has to be a vigilante like Batman, 
right? So that we can explain how he has all his shit or Iron Man or some shit, right? The whole ethos is that if you're rich, you're bad. Even in Iron Man, the richer, the, 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 the other rich guy is the bad guy. That's always what it is. And as long as you think that way, then it's going to be hard for you to become rich or wealthy. Use whatever word makes you feel more comfortable. I don't care. But rich people are generous. And wealthy-minded people think that way. I want to be wealthy so I can be more generous. And, and what will happen is a poor person will say, a poverty-minded person, I don't want to say poor person, because poor is a temporary state. Poverty mind is terminal until cured, right? But, but the person with a poverty consciousness, when a rich person does something generous, will say, oh, well, they can afford it. Well, why? Why can they afford it? And did they have to do it? Did somebody make them do it? Well, they got a tax deduction for it. Again, wealthy people, really wealthy people, create nonprofits. Now, look, you're going to say something like the Clinton Foundation. I understand. There's scum everywhere. But most wealthy people that want to be philanthropic, they create a nonprofit that they do not run because then the IRS gets very interested in what you're doing. So you create a nonprofit, you endow the nonprofit, and you let other people run it under a charter that you kind of direct from the beginning, like go do these good things. And then they constantly endow that nonprofit because they want to see to that thing that's generosity and they'd rather have it do the thing they believe is good than go to the government, which they believe is bad. But you want to believe you want to believe that rich people are bad and then you want to know why you can't become wealthy. I'm sorry. Um, rich people also will call spending an expense because that's what you want to put down on the balance sheet as an expense because that reduces tax burden. But they, they generally try to spend money in ways that can be seen as an investment. What do I, and an investment is not always a financial investment. Let's go back to charity. I'm rich, and I mean way richer than I am. Let's say I'm worth 100 million bucks. And I say with 100 million dollars, plus I, it's not like I quit. It's not like I won the lottery, got 100 million dollars in the bank, and that's it. Like I have an ongoing income, and without really devaluing my net worth at all, I can give away a million dollars a year. And I choose, instead of like walking around looking for homeless people and handing them wads of hundreds, to give my money to a nonprofit or a group of nonprofits. And I don't do it so they can build the Jack Spirico auditorium so that my name will be on a thing or something. I actually do it totally altruistically, and I give it to these other people. Yeah, I get a tax deduction. By the way, at that level, only so much. Why do I give, let's say, $10 million to the XYZ Foundation? Why do I do that? I do it if I'm an, if I'm actually an intelligent thinking wealthy person. I do that because I believe the XYZ Foundation can do more with the money than I could do myself. That's an investment. I believe that a better society is good for me in the long run. And I believe that if I endow this organization with this money, they'll give me an ROI on my investment, even though it's come back to my pocket. I magnify what I did. I gave 10 million. But I got the results that 20 million I could have gotten directly. That's an investment. And they view all their spending as that. When they see somebody and they say that person's a little down on their luck and they just say to the waiter, hey, come here, man. Um, when you when you run my check. Here, cover their pay for it. They never see that person again. It's still an investment. 
that person will know somebody gave a shit and maybe it'll change their life a little bit. So all spending in general is seen as an investment because if it's not an investment, then don't do it. You, you make your money into your slave. It needs to work for you and you only free it when it can do more free than in captivity. That's, that's, that's a true investment. Um, next, they also see problems as opportunities. Most people see problems as an excuse. People love problems because there's two ways you see a problem. There's a problem and it's why I'm not successful. Here's a problem, and it means the person with it is more screwed up than me, so I can feel superior about myself. Where a wealth-minded person says, there's a problem. What solution to that problem can I bring to the table, and what opportunity does that spell for me? Whether it's an income opportunity or, again, an investment opportunity, that there's the world's better because I did this. When I do a show like this today, I know that, as much as some people love it, some people are going to hate it. It'll cost me listeners. So why? So financially, this show's not a win for me. I'll tell you that right out of the gate. I know that. But the one person that takes it and does something with it, it's a huge win. That's an investment, right? And that's that's also seeing the problem as an opportunity to make that investment. So the investment in a problem is not always about a financial return. Sometimes it's about getting something to happen that you very much want to happen. And I know, like, when people talk like this, there's this natural inclination to just reject out of hand what they're saying. But the best days in my life, you know, outside of my family and wonderful things happening for my family or for a friend and a wonderful thing, the best days of my regular everyday days, I do my morning. I batch my email before I start working. I go through all the email that came in. And I see a a subject line says, Jack, you're a jerk. And I read a story about somebody that built a life. And and like now we're moving to the country and we bought our dream property or I just hired my third employee. Like I am on freaking cloud nine for the rest of the day. The problem that people are not succeeding is an opportunity to help them succeed. And if you do that enough, then you build enough of a following in this type of a business that you don't have to worry about money anymore. It's a byproduct. But it can also be I'm going to make a widget that solves problem A and that widget I'm going to patent it and make a billion dollars. That's that's fine, too. But everything is an opportunity. Everything that's a problem is an opportunity. The other side, though, the ninth thing is that rich people know that ideas are worthless and action and results are everything. Poor people. And again, I hate why I keep saying that it's part of my linguistic programming. I haven't severed yet. But notice how many times I fought it. Like when you say it, you fight it. You turn away from it, right? Poverty-minded people think that ideas are valuable. Any idea you have, somebody else had. And it's fine when you're a little kid. I remember I was in fifth grade. I'm so old that we used to wear watches to school, and we thought we were cool. This is even pre-swatch. There were no swatches. Like a cool watch was a Casio or a Timex. That's how far back I'm talking. And the cool thing became the calculator watch. The Casio, anybody remember, anybody here old enough remember the Casio calculator watch? And they were like 50 bucks in 1980s, right? 50 bucks and and, uh, in the 1980s, it was a lot of money, right? But you eventually connived, you got a Casio watch, and then your teacher took it away from you during a math test. But we had the Casio watch. I'm like, this is a computer. And my friend and me, we came up with an idea. 
we were going to make a watch you could play games on. And it had little bitty cartridges like an Atari that you could put in and play different games on your watch. And we thought we were so smart. Every kid that probably had one of them watches had that idea. It's worthless. The person that could actually figure out how to do it probably would have made a fortune. And so the poverty-minded person is always the person that comes to you, man, I got this idea for a businessman, and I want your opinion on it. And you're like, well, okay. But you can't tell anyone, you know what, I don't want to know. What, man, you want no. You are so full of your freaking self to say that. I don't even want to talk to you about it because your idea I already know is freaking worthless. If you if your idea had value in your mind, you would already be working on it. You'd be coming to me with a proposal for investment. I might say no, but I'd respect you. But you haven't even got to the first step of action and you're worried about defending your idea. And even when they go ahead and tell you after you said you don't care anymore, it's never ground shattering, earth shattering. Wow. You know, man, what I'm going to do, I'm going to start a farm and sell direct to consumer. Yeah, lots of people do that. You should go do that. But I want your opinion of it. Just gave it to you. And I can already tell you you're not going to do it. John Dowie, many of you know Dowie, Dowie After Dark, right? He came here years ago and did a, a series of classes at one of my workshops on, on his microgreen business. He, sh- he held nothing back. How he finds restaurants, how he samples chefs, what day to do it, what language to use, how to use the Internet to find it, how to grow it, how to harvest it, how to make it last as long as possible, how to deliver it, how to everything. And a good dozen people came up to him. I'm going to go do that. They walk away and he look at me and go, no, they're not. And only one did. That was a major, that's a major success though, that one did it. Right? That the idea is nothing. The fully packaged idea is nothing. One of the best ways people have made money online is they make an ebook that tells you how to do a business or a video series that tells you how to do a business. Why would they do that? Because there's way more people that will pay for the how than will do the how. That's why they make money doing it, because people like to mentally masturbate about success instead of actually go for success. Oh, by the way, a guy named Luke, I can't think of his last name now, wrote an ebook like that. I had him on the show. He sold the ebook. John Dowie bought the ebook. It was on microgreens, and John Dowie built this business out of an ebook. Somebody will do it. But I bet you that book sold thousands and thousands of copies for every one John Dowie pretty good hit rate actually it's okay but that's the reality your idea is nothing your idea is shit i have a hundred ideas a day the only ones that matter are the ones i do something with or i hand to somebody and they do something with next they do not fear risk wealthy people are not risk adverse poor people are risk adverse Poverty-minded people, damn it, Jack, poverty-minded people are risk-averse. Even if they have money, they're risk-averse. And they also take stupid risks. Poverty-minded people take stupid risks. They buy $10,000 worth of some shit coin because they saw a video about it on a guy who's paid to make the video. But they won't invest in their, themselves or in their business or advertise. They spend money foolishly when they do take risk, and it's because they're so afraid of risk that they eventually just go, screw it, i got to do something, and they jump in on something with no thought. 
Wealth-minded people seek risk and hedge it. They hedge that risk. So there's a, there's a maximum downside. Again, so this is the opposite. Remember I said positive thinking has a limit on the upside, but negative thinking has no limit on the downside. A hedged risk has a downside limit and no upside reward cap. And that's why wealthy people seek that and they, they're, they're intelligent about the way that they approach that. And so it's, I want to find all the risks that I can. I want to analyze all the risks on a risk reward. I can't take them all. So which risk can I most hedge the underside of? And a person that lives their life that way is going to have enough wins and their losses will always be limited that they're going to become incredibly successful. And you can either play that game or you can bitch about people who do. And that's true about all of these things. Wealth-minded people live life in a constant state of learning and seeking knowledge and always want to learn new things and new ways to do things. And have, Basically, poverty-minded people, they only learn what they have to when they need to, when they absolutely must. They don't like to stretch their minds. Right? If you are a, an obsessive learner and you don't fall into the analysis paralysis trap, and you do the other things. It's almost impossible for you not to become successful. If you're an obsessive learner, you'll eventually learn something that you can monetize. Or you're learning the wrong sh- I don't know what you're learning if you can't monetize it. I mean, people have monetized everything now. Look at the podcast world. Look at the YouTube world. I remember back in the day, I'm talking like 08, 09 when I started the show. I'm like, I used to, t- well, I would talk about entrepreneurship. There's nothing you can't monetize. You can monetize anything. I remember Gary Vaynerchuk at the Web 2.0, like the first big conference in New York, he said, if you like Smurfs, Smurf it up. And I gave him credit, but I powered it. I said, yeah, you can make money on Smurfs. You can make money on anything. Go look at what's going on right now. You know, I said, if you like fishing, go make, make, make money fishing more than just being a guide. How many fishing guides, really good fishing guides? Now have YouTube channels, and they make so much money on their YouTube channel, they don't guide people anymore. 2008, 2009, I talked about shit like that. People told me I was full of myself. I was full of shit. Now it's everywhere you look. There's almost nothing you can't do. You can specialize in something, and you can flip shit out of thrift shops, and you can make a living today. Or you can bitch about wealthy people having more than you do. Um, Brian, scrambling, right, who's on all the time on my feet. I don't see him here today. Dude is always hustling freaking something. Dude does DoorDash selectively because he thinks like a person that wants wealth. What I mean selectively, whenever he's out and about, he turns it on. If it pays really well, he takes it. If it doesn't, he doesn't take it. And some weekends he'll he'll put an extra four or five hundred bucks in his pocket over a weekend. Not really doing much more than he would have anyway, and deducting all his mileage and having no income on paper. You can bitch about somebody being successful like that, or you can emulate it. And the real reality is most people do not want success enough to do the things that are necessary to have success. That's why they want somebody to fix it for them. That's why they think a game designed by psychopaths, managed by sociopaths, and played by idiots will someday benefit them. That's why they play the lottery Rich people don't play the lottery. I don't remember the guy's name, but he was like the CEO of Lamborghini. 
It was like the late 70s or early 80s. Some big time magazine did an interview with him. And one of the questions they said was, well, we've noticed that Lamborghini is an iconic brand as it is. Never seen an advertisement for Lamborghinis on television. And he said, people that buy Lamborghinis don't watch television. There is a lesson there whether you want to accept it or not. So the kind of person I'm selling a Lamborghini to does not have, that's not that they never, he didn't mean they never watch television. They don't sit around watching television. They're too busy doing shit. And they're in a constant set of learning. And the last thing I'll give you, and it might be the most important thing that I'll give you today about success, they set uncomfortable goals for themselves. If you set a goal in your business, I'm going to increase sales by 10%, you go, no problem. Goal's too low. Goal's too low. You have to keep increasing your, your measurable, judgeable, concisely, it happens or it doesn't goal to the point where you seriously doubt your ability to do it, and then you go for it 100%. And, he, and that's one of those things, like you set the hurdle at five feet and the runner hits the hurdle every time, but they're hurdling four foot ten. And if you set the hurdle at four foot six, they might have hit the hurdle every time. Because they're striving to do more than they believe that they can, they will achieve more than they believe that they can. And so if your goals in life are not such that you feel uncomfortable, with those goals. And this, you understand, you have to expand this into other aspects of life. When you price a product, if you're comfortable with your price, raise your price. If you are comfortable with your price, raise your price. If you're like, sure, people will pay that. You're not charging enough. Or you've overvalued your product in your head. But if you set your price too high, it's very easy to, to decrease your price. If you're selling something that's a one-off sale, it's actually easy to go either direction. You can realize hamstrings. But if you're banking on building a customer base, buying a consumable product, whether it's information that comes on a regular basis or something they consume, a bag of coffee, right? I don't know. You're a beer manufacturer selling beer. Every time your price goes up, your customer base notices it. It is much easier to set your price at a real premium and run occasional sales and keep the value at the higher number in your customer base than it is to raise your price once you've come out cheap. It can work the other way. There's there's some, I'm thinking of a, oh, what the hell is it now? There was a wine manufacturer that came out with like a Chardonnay and a Pinot and, and what have you, and they, they, they came out at like $4.99 a bottle. And the first time I drank a bottle of this wine, I can't remember what it's called now. I was like, it's not a, $30 bottle of wine, but this is like a $12 bottle of wine for four bucks. They're a fairly big brand. I can see it in my head and I can't think of the name. It doesn't matter. And like, you know, you got to pick up a bottle for your wife of Pinot Grigio from this company and you're like, that's six bucks now. You notice it. And then you're like, it's eight bucks now. You know, it finally gets up to 12 bucks. If you're, a, if you were solely buying it because it was cheap, you fall out of their market. So they came, went out to cat to capture the $12 a bottle customer at $4.99 because they knew that the $12 a bottle customer would stick with them when they went up to that price 
But that's you have to really get things right. In general, small business, that's a big company, too, by the way. Um, a small business, you want to price to the uncomfortable level. You want your goals to the uncomfortable level. And if you don't do that, you won't grow. You won't grow. You'll be the lobster that took a pill. So I'll tell you that little story and then we'll wrap up. I can't remember the guy's name. It was a rabbi I told this story. One of those things that just stuck in my head, I'll never let go. He said, if human beings, if lobsters were like human beings, lobsters wouldn't grow. So a human being becomes uncomfortable. They go to a doctor. The doctor gives them a drug. They take the drug. The drug makes them comfortable and they stay where they are. A lobster grows to a certain point inside its shell because it's very uncomfortable and has to become vulnerable. It goes and hides in a place so the other lobsters don't kill it when it's weak. And its shell falls off and its shell is soft and then it rehardens so it can grow. But if the lobster had the option to go take a pill to stop the growth, it would. It would never be uncomfortable. It would never be vulnerable, but it would never grow. You have to be vulnerable and uncomfortable in your goals or you're not going to grow. You're not going to grow. Ah, somebody's got it. Hobbit nuts. You got it, bro. Barefoot. That's the brand of wine. It's the exact brand of wine I'm talking about right there. Uh, it was Barefoot that did that. They executed it perfectly. Um, what I want to end with, first of all, through all this, the theme that you should be taking is you're the commander in your life. You're in charge. There is nothing more responsible for your success and or your failures than your actions, your decision, and your mindset. I don't care what bad or good has happened to you. In the end, you are the most responsible party. Now, if things were just handed to you, there's an exception for a piece of it. And if things were unfairly, legitimately taken beyond your control from you, there's an exception to it. But in the end, we all play this game. And if a broke-ass Poor kid from the coal region of Pennsylvania in a town that is now rife with heroin use can be successful in multiple ways. So I, you know, I'm a successful podcaster today, and that's its own thing now. People think there's some kind of magic you have to do it or something, or, oh, he started early. It didn't hurt. But I was pretty successful before I did this. I just didn't really enjoy it, and I wanted to do something different. If I can do it, you can. And it was a choice. When I started this show, I took a little recorder, not much bigger than this remote right here in my hands. I put a little headset in it, set it in my lap in my car, hit record, and said, Hi, this is Jack Spirico with the first edition of the Survival Podcast. It was terrible, but it worked, and I learned how to become successful in it. But how many people would say, I have an idea for a podcast? And because they wanted it to be perfect out of the gate, they never did anything. You either do or you do not. In the words of Yoda, there is no try. There is no try. Actually, there is try. Yoda's wrong. It's interesting. Now that I said that, I realized how wrong Yoda is. Success is built upon try and fail and try and fail and try and fail until you succeed. And in that way, in the larger macro, there is no try. There's only continually attempting until you succeed. If you quit... You didn't really try. That's the real meaning of that word. If you quit, you didn't really try. Or you decided this is it for me and you went and did something else. That's informed. That's informed. The humble mechanic said, dude, if I can do it, legit everyone can. Humble mechanics is a tremendous success today. One of the biggest successes that 
that ever interacted with the TSP community. And I remember when no one knew who he was. No one knew who this dude was. But he just did it. Well, he made the choice to do it. No one did it for him. I promise you, humble, if I'm wrong, you tell me. Nobody one day said, hey, man, I'm from the giant corporation of corporations, and we've decided that we're going to make you a success. That's not how he got successful. He made a choice to do it, right? Um, somebody's bringing up toolbox fallacy. That's worth looking up. Go to the survivalpodcast.com if you never heard the two episodes I did on it and put in toolbox fallacy and listen to those two episodes because there's a lot that builds on this. And Humble says, nope, nope. Um, the thing is, most people will never accept the things I've told you today. You, you, they will never accept the things that I've told you today. It's too painful. And the worse their situation in life and the more they've leaned on the crutch of it's the rich people, it's the bad people, I didn't have the opportunity. The more they've leaned on that crutch, the more painful accepting all the things I've told you today are. It's incredibly painful. It hurts. Because you have to look at whatever you're in and say, I bear the most, not all, I bear the most responsibility for this. But it's like being a drug addict. You have to admit you have a problem to cure the problem. There's even people like alcoholics. There's what's called dry drunks. They became an alcoholic. They never figured out why they became an alcoholic. They don't drink anymore. They're healthier for it. But they're always seriously at risk of backsliding into alcoholism because they just quit drinking. They didn't figure out why they became completely dependent upon a substance. Turning your life around is the same no matter what you're turning it around from, whether it's substance abuse, whether it's allowing somebody to abuse you and having to separate yourself, whether it's having a poverty consciousness. You must first accept that you made your bed. And then you got to get out of the freaking bed before you can make it right. And it's all up to you, and it's very hard to do. So what I want to ask you here at the end is what opportunity do you see? What knowledge do you seek? Are you willing to take command of your life? To say, some of you won't like the way I'm going to phrase this, but some of you need to hear it this way. And I don't care if you're a woman. You could say it some other way if you want to, right? I'm the biggest swinging dick in this room. I'm in charge. I'm in control. And I'm going to make it happen, including if the room's empty. There's no one else in there. You have to start realizing that we all, to a point, have, like, multiple personalities, right? And I don't mean, like, the crazy ones where, my name's Bill, my name's Tom. Like, I don't mean like that. I mean, we all have within us characteristics and traits. You see this in, like, sci-fi movies where the guy gets split into the evil version and the good version, and they're really just him. But there's more than the evil and the good. We all have a piece of us that's bold and a piece of us that's fearful. Yeah? We all have that. We all have a piece of us that's risk averse and it's a risk taker. We all have a piece of us that's impulsive and a piece of us that is reserved and conservative. We all have a piece of us that's emotional and a piece of us that's logical. And you can keep going. And you could come up with at least a dozen different things that are opposites, yins and yangs, positives and negatives. And, but it's the positive and negative. You know, when somebody says it's the negative side of a magnet, no one says, well, it's because it's, it's negative. It's bad. 
right? It just is. There's a positive side and a negative side, and they repel each other, right? Actually, they attract each other, and the two of the same repel each other, and that's why we make electricity, yeah? Right? So no one says it's bad that there's a negative side to the battery, right? Or there's a negative polarity. No one says it's bad. There's an, it's just the other side of. So the conservative side of you is not bad or good. It is. And the, the adventurous side of you is not bad or good. It is. And the two balance each other if your life's lived right. But if you start thinking it as like a multiple personality, you start having to think about managing yourself and commanding yourself and leading a team. I talk about becoming a leader of teams. You're like, I don't have a team. It's just me. You have a team. You have to, the, the mental computer that lives in your, 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 your skull head, right? That three pounds of gray matter up here in your cranium. You have to use it wisely. Your consciousness. And when I mean consciousness, I'm not talking about some ethereal thing. I'm talking about the thing that makes you go, I'm self-aware. I know who I am. I'm in this room right now. I am speaking to a camera and a microphone and people are seeing me on the other end of it. And I'm aware of that. That consciousness, that's the that's like where you sit in the ship as the captain. And you command the risk-adverse member of your team that's actually you. We're going to take more risk right now. And you take the, the risk-seeker who goes over the top with risk and you say, hey, risk-adverse over here brought up a good point. The two of you are going to work together and balance this risk. And you start my, ma managing your actions by managing these different parts of your personality as a team so that you can be the most successful team that you're capable of. And I think people that have managed larger teams or run companies are better at this because they start, even if they don't realize the analogy, they start to act that way. Because you're going to find out if you ever become successful enough in a job or a business management role, whether it's your business or somebody else's, the team you get is never going to be the team you want. No, there's no such thing as a dream team. You, you have a business and it's a marketing firm and you have a graphics designer and the guy is a great graphics designer and that's what you hired him to do, but he's a prima donna and he gets upset really easily, you know, or whatever. And you're always going to have to manage the interrelationships of people. But you manage the interrelationships of your personality traits within you the same way. By letting one offset the other and by empowering one and weakening the other at times and then doing the exact opposite in others by making a good judgment about the ground that you're on, you become more successful. So with that in mind, what opportunities do you see? What knowledge do you seek to capitalize on those opportunities? Are you willing to take command? Of those things. And for those of you that have any hesitation in your mind when I ask you that question, my last question today. If not now, when? Do you think someday you'll wake up and it'll just be the right day? Do you think someday when you wake up, you'll fart really hard and your brain will pop and then you'll be able to do it? Do you think somebody will come magically bless you? And put their hand on your shoulder and you'll be able to do it. Do you think somebody will discover you in a in a freaking soda shop like they did in the 50s and now you're going to be an actor? Do you think that something is going to just come into your world? Do you think your ship is going to come in? Or are you going to build a fucking ship? You know, one day my ship will come in. No, it won't. 
build the fucking ship now. Because if not now, when can turn into never. The dash gets shorter every day. We are mortal. And no matter what's done to extend our lives in the future, the dash will run out. Will you take command? What are you going to do with what you have? If not now, when? And exactly what I thought would happen in this episode happened. So congratulations if you're still here. We peaked at about 160 people, and we're sitting at 113. Because there were people that heard what they didn't want to hear today, and they left. Some people come and go because they had to. They can only be here so long. But when you see a number fluctuate like that, some people got hit with something today they couldn't handle. If you are still here and here, look at this. Has he has jumped on the motivational speaker bandwagon? Joseph Jones, I cannot help you. You need to leave. There's nothing I can do for you. You are going to fail. How motivational is that, Joseph? The motivational speaker bandwagon jumped on the bandwagon. We can tell somebody, folks that have been here a while, you know, you can tell somebody that's not been here a while. There is nothing I said today. Maybe the words were a little different, but there's nothing presented today that wasn't presented in 2008 in some show. 14 years ago, 14 years have been saying the same thing. And this is the person I'm talking about. This is this is the person I'm talking about. Jumped in the motivational speaker bandwagon. Somebody told you that you were responsible for your own life and your immediate reaction is to say, well, you know, oh, he says it's 80 percent of my content has been for years now. What are you doing here then? Unless I'm taking your comments wrong. What are you doing here? What are you doing here if it's 80% of my content and it's a bandwagon? It's not a bandwagon. I don't do it because, you know, if I wanted to build a business on this fully, yeah, sure. Standing up on stage is doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Humble Mechanics says, I've heard this from Jack in 2011-ish. Shit works, people. It's because he went and did something with it. If not now, when? Build your own damn ship. Let's move on real quick. I do need to wrap up. I do want to remind you guys, if you like my show and the work that you do, that we do, there are some things you can do to help support the show. One of those is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Um, he's checking back. Yep, I got a solution for you. There you go. There's your solution, Joseph. Anyway, um, if you start your online shopping at T-Spaz, you can help us out no matter what you buy. I also find the products that I recommend uh, there, and I spent my money on them, and I would again. And I noticed today that one of my favorite incubators I've ever used. So full disclosure, I did kill one of these after shipping it to people and having them ship it back over and over and over. And I've tried a different one that I like, and I still need to review that one, but I still love this one. Um, it's on sale today. It's on sale for like 160 bucks. I think it's like 189 is what they sell it for regularly retail now. I think I paid 200 for mine years ago. It is one of the best incubators I've ever used. It's easy to program and it just works and it will hatch a shitload of eggs and it's on sale. So those of you that do the homesteading and stuff like that, you know, check it out. See if this is the right time for you to do it. But I want to just cover this one little paragraph at the beginning here uh, for those watching the video. Special note talks about the sales price, but it also says, 
the right now is like kind of the best time for you to get going with incubating and hatching eggs if you keep a layer flock. And here's why. If you got this today, the next couple of weeks, whatever, got it set up, started saving your eggs, it's very easy right now. As your chickens are probably starting to lay a little bit more as the days are getting longer. We're past the 21st, the winter solstice. Um, so it'd be very easy to save up. I think 32 chicken eggs is what I used to run in one of these. And I would get hatch rates of like 95% all the time with this one, especially with chicken eggs. By the 1st of February, you could have it full, hatch 30 chickens, let's say. On the 22nd of February, you'll have babies. 21 days of gestation once those eggs go in the incubator. If you have chicks in the brooder on February 22nd, your birds will start laying in about 22 weeks. That will be July 26th. Some breeds 24 weeks, so you're out about uh, first week of August. Well, they'll start laying eggs for you. Guess what your other birds will be doing at that time? Molting and not producing. So this approach of incubating eggs early in the year, earlier than most people do, gets that new run of birds into production of eggs, okay, before the or at the time that your other main core flock is not laying. So it's a way to cheat the molt. Right. And it's it's something I definitely do with ducks, because if I didn't do it with ducks, we can't serve our customers for about six weeks. We already are going to have a hole in production at the end of the year. Ducks more than chickens just are kind of like December, dude, from like Thanksgiving through the first of January. I, we're not. Here's one. The whole flock's like, here's one egg today. And then they pick up like right now. They're starting to really pick up and we're getting more eggs almost every day. So we already have one hole in the production schedule. I don't need two. So you hatch and then you bring birds that are not going to molt in that first cycle into that laying cycle. So that's why it's a good time to buy right now. Just a little add on that had not a lot to do with the other things we talked about today. Hope you guys enjoyed it today. Uh, again, I know it's the kind of thing that is hard for some people to hear, but it's, it's not the motivational speaker bandwagon. It's the things that I, you know, 50 years of life, having been broke, having been successful, having been successful and then losing things and having to build it back. It's the things that work. And there is some motivational speaker component to it, because if you're not motivated, you're not going to succeed. If you don't believe you can, you will find a way to prevent yourself from doing so. It's just how it is. So if it takes some dude that's never met you, who believes in your ability more than you do for yourself to make yourself look inside and realize the self-worth you have, so be it. Yeah, I do do a little bit of motivational speaking. And you want to know really why? You want to know what's like made me unable to go too long without doing it? Realizing that what I do matters, which is what I try to teach you. But realizing it matters in ways that when I started this journey, I never thought it would. I've more than once, and I mean once is too many times for this to be the case in our society today, but more than once I've had somebody come up to me and tell me that they were in a dark place. Quite a few of the military veterans and thought about ending their lives. And one way or another heard something I said in their head and it wouldn't let go of them. I had one guy say he literally put his 45 in his mouth. 
And he thought about two things. Me saying what you do matters, which is literally one of my tenets that I built the show on, one of my your modern survivalist tenets, what you do matters. It's the final one. It's the bookend. Me saying that and him thinking of his kids. And he put his life back together. So, yeah, I'll try to motivate you. I'll try to change your actions. I'll try to make you believe in yourself. And mostly I have to do it because we have a society where everybody's told they're special, but then taught not to believe in themselves. We have a bipolar society because we have a bipolar designed society. We have a domesticated society. You're a racehorse and you can run as fast as you want, but this is your pen. What I'm trying to tell you today, you are a racehorse. If you're in a pen, jump over the fucking gate. With that, has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.